listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. Colossians 2 is where we are, verses 13 through 15. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. This is the passage we looked at last Sunday. I told you that uh, this is a two-part series. And so everybody that canceled their cruise this weekend to be a part of the second part, appreciate you doing that. The title of the sermon this morning is Disarming the Devil. Disarming the Devil. So Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15, then we're going to pause and pray and get started. Paul writes this to these Colossian Christians. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, and that just means when you were separated from God, just to keep it simple, you were separated from God. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, every one of them. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. He made them a laughing stock, triumphing over them by the cross. Powerful stuff. Let's pray. Why don't you get your communion ready as well? We'll, we'll have that ready to go at the very end. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your presence in this room. We are loved. We are made fearfully and wonderfully in your image. And you've given us the task of serving you serving your agenda, carrying out your will in Crowley, Louisiana, in Acadia Parish and beyond. So, Lord, I pray that this time together in your word would be profitable to that end. May we not just receive this as a routine message, listening to a man on a platform, but I pray that we would direct our spiritual ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, in our lives, in our marriages, in our households, in our church, in our community. Holy Spirit, we welcome your voice, and we ask you to speak powerfully in the name of Christ. Amen. We saw last week in this passage that there are three things that were accomplished in the crucifixion of Christ, three things that Paul mentions in the passage that were accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ. We looked at the first one last week. I preached a message last week called The Great Cancellation. No, no, no. Go, go to the title image. The very first thing that happened on the cross is that it canceled the charge of our indebtedness. Jesus said that whoever sins has become a slave to sin. That's exactly what's happened to the human race. Because we sinned against God, we rebelled against God, we pushed ourselves away from God, we have now become slaves to sin. Therefore, Satan holds a legal claim, a legal hold over humanity. We, all throughout the Bible, Satan is like this prosecuting attorney. He's constantly looking for something that he can hold against us. He, he likes the idea of bringing accusation and condemnation against us. That's who Satan is. And in Revelation 12, he's, he's referred to as the accuser. Everybody say accuser. That's who Satan is. He's the accuser of the brothers and sisters. 
Day and night he accuses. Every sin, every fault, every shortcoming, every crime, he wants to point it out and he wants to use it to drive you into the ground with condemnation. He's the accuser. The very name Satan in Hebrew, it, mean, it, it, it comes from the word hasatan. It means the adversary. And the one who he's the adversary of is God. He opposes God. He is the opposite of God. So think of this. If Satan, who is the accuser, is the opposite of God, then that makes God the anti-accuser. God's not the voice of accusation in your life. God is actually your defender. God is on your side. God is the one who rebukes the accuser and puts the accuser in his place. That's who God is. We looked at this very interesting passage briefly yes, uh, last week in Zechariah 3 where the prophet Zechariah has a vision. And in this vision, he sees this man, Joshua, who was the high priest at the time. And he sees Joshua in this courtroom. Have you ever been in a courtroom? He sees Joshua in this courtroom, and, and Satan, the accuser, is bringing accusation against him. He's pointing out the fact that Joshua is a sinner, symbolized by the fact that he's wearing filthy clothes. And so Satan's accusing him. He's a sinner. He's wearing filthy clothes. And, and we talked about how Satan's accusation is actually right on target. It's not a false accusation. Joshua is a sinner, and he is wearing filthy clothes. God doesn't even dispute the truth of the accusation. It is true. Nevertheless, the Lord rebukes the accuser. And the Lord says, how dare you constantly point the finger of accusation? This is my beloved child we're talking about. And yeah, my child has sinned, but my love for my child is greater than anything they could ever do wrong. And yes, he's wearing filthy clothes. We can clean him up. We're going to give him clean clothes. But how dare you constantly bring condemnation? This is my beloved child we're talking about. So the Lord is not the accuser. He is not the voice of accusation in your life. Sometimes we wonder, how can we tell the difference between the voice of God and the voice of the enemy? And it's very simple. When, when the enemy speaks into your life, whether directly or indirectly, through other people or through circumstances or whatever, when the enemy speaks into your life, it always leaves you in shame. It always leaves you feeling condemned. It always feel, leaves you feeling hopeless. I'll never get it right. This is who I'll always be. I've done it again. That is the product of the voice of accusation from, from the adversary, from the Hasatan, from Satan. The voice of God, on the other hand, always produces life in you. Even when God speaks correction, even when God has a hard thing to say to you. You know, Hebrews says he disciplines those he loves. There are times God may discipline you. He may give you harsh correction. But even in the word of correction, it always leaves you with hope. It always leaves you encouraged. It leaves you with a way forward. If I'll just turn, if I'll just stop, if I'll just turn around, here's where God's going to take us. And so God is not the accuser in your life. If you want to know what God is like, you don't look at Satan the accuser. Northside, if you want to know what God is like, who do you look to? Jesus. You've had that drilled into your brains at Northside. I'm proud of that. You want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus hanging on the cross dying for the very people who crucified him, praying, Father, forgive them. That's what God looks like. God is altogether beautiful, altogether lovely, altogether pure, altogether good, altogether holy. And the problem that Jesus came to solve 
when Jesus came to this earth, listen, when Jesus came to this earth and willingly gave his life up on the cross, the problem he came to solve was not to get the Father off our back. Some people think this way. They think the Father was the one who just couldn't wait to condemn us, couldn't wait to vent his anger against us. But Jesus steps in and says, no, Dad, don't vent against them. I'll take it. And that, that causes all kinds of problems. That's not the problem Jesus came to solve, was to get the Father off our back. The problem Jesus came to solve by going to the cross was to get the devil off our back. He came to destroy the works of the devil. So I, it just grieves me how often Christians sometimes can confuse God with the devil. Everything hangs on keeping those two separate. So the very first thing that the cross accomplished that Paul mentions here is that the victory of the cross canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. In other words, it didn't, it didn't just cancel our sins. It didn't just cancel our debt. It actually took the very concept of debt and blew it into a million pieces. That's what happened on the cross. That's what we talked about last week. So that's the first thing. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, disarming the powers and principalities, disarming the demonic realm. But there were also two other things that were accomplished on the cross. And I want to throw those into the mix today as well. And that is, he didn't just disarm them. He triumphed over them. And he made the, a public spectacle out of them. He made them into a laughingstock. So this morning, what I want to talk about is how exactly did that happen? How does that actually work? How did the cross actually accomplish these three things? You, you see this theme woven out throughout the entire New Testament. That on the cross, God outsmarted the enemy. How does that work? That's what I want to focus on. And what we're going to do today, I'm going to walk you quickly through five clues, five facts that come out of the New Testament that when we look at each one of these five facts, we see clearly how the cross accomplished these three things and how the cross outsmarted the enemy. So I want to walk you through five New Testament facts. Number one, fact number one, is that God kept his plan secret. You know, this plan that God had to send his son into the world to self-sacrificially give his life, we learn in the New Testament in multiple places that actually that was a plan from the very beginning. It wasn't something God just made up on the spot. In Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the lamb slain before the foundations of the world, just to give you one example. So this was always God's plan. God, God always planned to become a human being on earth. He always planned to self-sacrificially give his life from the very beginning. That was always in his mind. But this plan was hidden from everyone. It was kept secret on purpose, which you're going to see why in just a moment. But you see, for example, this, this passage earlier in Colossians 1, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Paul, he talks about this mystery, he says, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Now, you look at those two words, ages and generations. And it almost seems that Paul perhaps maybe he's being a little redundant here. Don't those words mean the same thing? But most scholars believe the word ages refers to the history of the angelic realm. The word generations refers to the history of the human realm. 
So what Paul is saying is this plan was kept hidden from everybody. Even the angels in heaven had no clue what God had in store. It was a plan that was hidden from the very beginning, but it has now been disclosed. So that's fact number one. God kept his plan hidden. Number two, fact number two is that the demons throughout the Gospels, they recognize Jesus. They know he's the son of God. They know who he is. They don't know why he came to earth. They don't know why he's here. There's a passage that I meditated on all last week. It was the passage of the week. For those of you that have taken the prayer workshop, you know what that's all about. And it's at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. At this point, Jesus has just launched his public ministry. He's a relative unknown. So his fame is just beginning to, it hasn't even gotten off the ground quite yet. It's about to spread. But he goes into the synagogue of Capernaum. I've actually been in that synagogue. There's an ancient synagogue there that dates back to the 4th century, and it's built on a foundation from an earlier synagogue, which would have been the exact synagogue Jesus would have stood in. And so Jesus is in this synagogue, and he's teaching these people, and all of a sudden a guy walks in with an unclean spirit. He's demonized, and he starts acting out. And Jesus, this is the very first supernatural act that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus eventually drives this unclean spirit out of this man. But what's interesting is that the unclean spirit in the process speaks out to Jesus and says, why are you here? Have you come to destroy us? He says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And what's interesting is that when you walk through the book of Mark, like for the first nine chapters, the only being, the only type of being that publicly professes who Jesus is, is a demon. Everybody else in the story is still trying to figure it out. Who is this guy? Who is he? And in some ways, they, most of them wouldn't even find out until after his resurrection. But you walk through the first half of the book of Mark, and I'm talking about his disciples. His disciples don't even know. They're mixed up. I don't know. Could he be? I think he is, but I'm not sure. I definitely don't want to say it yet. Even his own mom, his own brothers, the crowd, the religious leaders, they're confused about who he is. Even John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist at the very beginning, he's like, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then a few chapters later, in Mark at least, in Mark, (laughs) John's arrested and he sends word and he just tells him, hey, go ask him, is he really the one or should we, we, should we be waiting for somebody else? They're all confused. They're all unclear. The only group of beings who are never confused about who Jesus is are the demons. They know who he is from the very beginning, but they don't know why he has come. And that's the question that tortures them. Why is he here? What is he up to? This is unexpected. You see, because demons, follow me, demons are pure evil. And to the degree that you are evil, you can't understand love. You can't understand something that you're devoid of. And so because they can't understand love, they can't understand love-motivated action. 
They can't imagine why God would send his son into the world on behalf of a lost race of rebellious people. And then later on, they certainly can't understand why in the world would he make himself vulnerable and put himself in a position where he's giving his life on the cross. They, have, they can't even fathom this. They can't even imagine this. They know who he is, but they do not know why he's here. But what they do know is that somehow or another he's become a human being. And he's entered now into the realm over which we have authority. Therefore, he's killable. And so right from the very beginning, they begin to orchestrate a plan to have him killed. And that leads to the third fact, number three. Satan and the powers and principalities helped orchestrate the crucifixion. Now, when you read the crucifixion narratives in all four Gospels, human beings are the ones who are at the forefront of the story. They're the main players in the whole thing. So you see Judas Iscariot betraying him, the temple guards. You see Caiaphas, the high priest, Pontius Pilate. There's a lot of human beings involved in the crucifixion. And these are free human beings who are making their own free decisions. You know, they're not being controlled here, but they are being manipulated. Even though human beings are the ones on the front stage, Satan and the demonic powers are the ones behind the scenes on the fringe pulling the strings the whole time. Because here's how it works. When you as a human being continue to live in persistent sin and you harden your heart against God, you harden your heart against the things of God, to the degree that you harden your heart against God, that's the degree to which you now become open. You open yourself up. And you become susceptible to the influence and the manipulation of powers and principalities. That's exactly what happens with the crucifixion. So you take, for example, Judas Iscariot. In John 13, Jesus has this last meal with his disciples the night of his arrest. They have this wonderful Passover meal, and Jesus sits with the twelve. And Judas, in the midst of it, takes the bread, and he eats of the bread. And it says Satan entered him. And Jesus looks at him and says, what you're about to do, do quickly. And, G and Satan or uh, Judas goes off and eventually is going to be betray him. But you, you have to understand this about Judas. Judas is totally responsible for the direction he's going in. Even though Satan has entered him, he has made himself by his own free decisions someone who is open and susceptible to the enemy's usage. And so Judas takes of the bread. I believe that was his last act of hypocrisy. Satan enters him. He leaves. He's influenced to betray Jesus, which directly leads to his arrest and then his crucifixion. But it was Satan and the powers and principalities the whole time who were behind the scenes orchestrating the entire murder of Jesus Christ. And by doing so, they play right into the plan of God. And that leads into fact number four. So, so number one, God kept his plan secret. Number two, the demons know who he is. They don't know why he's here. Number three, they orchestrate his death. And here's where the whole thing turns. Number four, Jesus was sinless. And because Jesus was sinless, Satan had no legitimate claim over him. Satan had no authority over him. Look at what Jesus says in John 14, verse 30, right before his arrest. He says, I'm not going to say much more to you. For the prince of this world is coming. Now, when he says prince of this world, that's a reference to Satan. And he's talking specifically about Satan preparing his crucifixion. All right? 
And I want you to leave that up there for just a couple minutes. He says, I won't say much more to you, for the devil is coming to prepare my crucifixion. It's about to happen, but he's saying it in a coded way. The prince of the world is, this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. See, Jesus always does what the Father wants him to do, always says what the Father wants him to say. Therefore, he's sinless. That means Jesus' death is an unjust death. And so when Satan arranges for the crucifixion of Christ, he plays right into the plan of God. You look at the way Jesus says it here. He almost says it as if Satan's doing the world a favor by crucifying him. You know, he says he's coming so that the world may know that I love the Father and I do exactly what the Father says. So Jesus, a sinless man, is crucified. It's an unjust death. And in doing so, Jesus becomes our sacrificial lamb. He willingly sacrifices himself, takes upon himself our sin, our condemnation, and he gives his life. He sacrifices his life, his life and takes the punishment that, that was under the law that we would have experienced. Well, Jesus says, I'm going to take it on my own back, and he's killed. And that one act right there is the very act that releases and reveals the power of God's perfect love that breaks bondages and sets captives free. Satan plays right into the Father's hidden plan. And that leads to the fifth and final point. And that is that the crucifixion, as we learn in this passage, canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, defeated Satan and the authorities, and made them into a public spectacle. These powers and principalities, they know who he is. He's the Lord of glory. Now, if they'd have known why he came, they'd never crucified him, as 1 Corinthians says. But they know who he is. They just don't know why he's here. They can't understand love. They're devoid of love. They can't relate to it. So they can't understand the love-motivated wisdom of God. All they know is he's here. And they rage against him, and they crucify him. And by doing so, they play right into the Father's hand. Jesus, our sinless spotless lamb, gives up his life, sacrifices his life, takes upon himself our own sin, our own condemnation, our own bondage. And as he sacrifices his life, here's the best way I can describe it. It's like an atomic bomb going off in the demonic realm. Get a vision of that. When Jesus sacrificially gives his life, it's like this explosion in the spiritual realm that blows apart our sin. It blows apart our debt. It blows apart the very charge of our debt. Jesus' act on the cross blows apart our condemnation. It blows apart our shame. It blows apart our bondage. All sin, all hatred, all evil. Every piece of ammunition that the enemy could have against us, that the accuser had, every bit of it, Jesus' self-sacrificial death blows it sky high into a billion pieces. Come on, somebody. And the net result is that now we're free. We're no longer under the bondage of the enemy. We're no longer under the authority of the enemy. We're no longer under the thumb of the enemy. We've been set free now to boldly enter the throne of grace. We've now been set free to live righteously and holy before him in Christ. We've now, as we sang this morning, we're now set free to live free from fear. Praise God. Because we know how this story ends. We're now set free to see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of God's love for us and to be reconciled to the Father. We're now set free to be seated with Christ in heavenly places, 
far above all powers and principalities. We're now set free to live and walk in the victory that belongs to Jesus Christ. He who the Son has set free is what? Free indeed. Hallelujah. And here's the kicker of the whole thing. We have Satan to thank for all of this. He, that's why he's a laughing stop because he's the one who's done this. He orchestrated the entire crucifixion. And it backfires right in his face. God comes to this earth, second person of the Trinity, comes to this earth, walks straight into the enemy's camp, knowing full well that they would have no clue why he's here, knowing full well that they wouldn't be able to resist the opportunity that he's giving them, knowing full well that they're going to use the power they have in this realm and use it to crucify him. That's exactly what they do, and it backfires right in their face. As God always does, God in his infinite wisdom finds a way to get evil to self-destruct, to get evil to self-implode. God in his infinite wisdom finds a way to get Satan to disarm himself. God in his infinite wisdom finds a way to get Satan to forfeit his right to ever accuse anybody ever again. God in his infinite wisdom finds a way to get Satan and the demonic powers to blow apart their own arsenal of ammunition, everything they had against us, it's all gone, and they're the ones who did it. God, in his infinite wisdom, found a way to get this roaring lion, as First Peter calls the devil. He's this roaring lion that goes about seeking whom he may devour. Well, God, on the cross, finds a way to get this roaring lion to pull out his own teeth. He's not just defeated, he's a laughingstock. And our job is to live in that freedom and put on display that freedom, reminding the powers and principalities that they are coming to nothing and we've been set free. Whenever we refuse to let the accuser accuse us, whenever we refuse to let the enemy drive fear in our hearts that, has, that causes us to be hesitant about entering the throne of grace, whenever we refuse that, we are putting on display the wisdom of God and reminding the powers and principalities that they've been defeated. Whenever we trust that God's love is bigger than our sin, that God can take our filthy clothes and turn them into radiant garments, when we trust that God's love is so much bigger than the mess we've made out of our lives, when we embrace that and walk in it and live in it, we're putting on display the wisdom of God and reminding the powers and principalities that they have been defeated, praise God. When we refuse to give fear a place in our life, and when we learn and understand that God is not the accuser, God is the anti-accuser, God is our defender, he's on our side, he's the one that rebukes the accuser and puts the accuser in his place. When we live in that reality, we are putting on display the wisdom of God and reminding the powers and principalities that they have been defeated. Come on. When we live as children of God and we're transformed from the inside out, we're putting on display the wisdom of God and reminding these powers and principalities that they've been defeated. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? So it begins by just, if, you're, if you've submitted your life to Jesus, this is what is true. This is what is real. It's, it's, it's more real than the very seat you're sitting on right now. And what we got to do is stop allowing the culture around us to dictate how we think about ourselves and how we think about life. We've got to let the truth of what God has done and what God has spoken to become 
part of our inner self, part of our thoughts, and part of the way we live. So it begins by just speaking it out, declaring it, proclaiming it, and letting these powers and principalities know that they have been outwitted, and we've been set free in Jesus Christ. So I want to end this morning with a declaration, and we're going to declare it in communion, too, in just a moment. How many of y'all feel like making a declaration today? Why don't you stand with me this morning? Stand with me, and, and if, you're, if you're seated, if you're, if you're standing there next to your, your family, maybe you have a spouse or your children, why don't you just hold hands? And um, I want you to, we're, we're going to lead this declaration. I want you to declare this. I want you to declare it with boldness. I want you to declare it with authority. You know, I've been told that these powers and principalities, they're kind of hard of hearing. So we're going to have to shout it out and let them know what is true. All right, are you ready? So from the bottom of your heart, I want you to repeat after me. Heavenly Father, we declare that you are Lord. You are our God. You are our King. You are our Savior. You are beautiful, lovely, gracious, merciful, forgiving. You are our Father. And we declare that you have defeated the enemy. And we declare to the principalities and the powers, and to Satan, that you have been defeated. You have been outsmarted. You are a laughingstock. We are free. The charge against us has been canceled. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free. We are forgiven. We are filled with His Spirit. The enemy has no charge on us. For if God be for us, who can be against us? No one. For we are free. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.